The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Today, I want to start by talking about jumping to conclusions. We all do it, and if you're prone to anxiety, you might do it more often, and immediately go negative. But it's also really easy to look around and make judgments about what other people are going through. Why aren't they performing? Why they aren't helping you finish the project? Whatever it is. Or it's easy to imagine they're perfect. They have it all figured out. I probably don't have to tell you this, but when you guess, you're probably wrong. Recent data on the state of young people's mental health is shocking. It's horrifying. But I also hear grumbling from more senior executives that mental illness is a, quote, young people thing. It's something that I've been sort of seeing and noticing. The idea that mental health, that anxiety, it's really for millennials or Gen Z at work. And it's thus taken less seriously by the guys in charge. It's a new spin on an old idea that kids these days are soft. But it's the kind of stigma that we, of course, want and need to break the assumption that someone is playing something up to get attention or just wants a day off work. I've heard this. I'll be exploring this kind of intergenerational tension in future episodes. But for today, I wanted to talk to Chip Conley, who's all about not just mental health advocacy, but about gaining wisdom and learning from experience. Chip is an entrepreneur in the hospitality space, having started his company Joie de Vivre and serving as an executive and advisor at Airbnb. He's also the author of many books, including Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder. As you know, I love it when leaders with power are open about their mental health challenges. That's Chip. Chip is a wealthy white guy in his 60s who is incredibly open about his own anxiety and the ups and downs in what looks like on the outside a perfectly successful life. In doing so, I hope he makes it safer for others with high-powered careers to share their own vulnerabilities. And indeed, that's part of the work he's doing at his Modern Elder Academy. Chip and I spoke about his mental health journey, what he's learned from the high-stakes hospitality industry, and why he thinks the generations can do more to learn from each other. So, Chip, I want to start with kind of a newsy question that is very much on my mind and that I get asked a lot. And so I thought you would have a perspective on it. I am getting some variation of the question, is anxiety a Gen Z or a millennial thing? There seems to be a growing supposition in the workplace that it's only the young people who are feeling anxious, and therefore we don't either need to take it as seriously or it's just their version of complaining. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I I think 
I wish it was only millennials and Gen Z. No kidding. Feel anxiety <laughs> then. And I, I had some serious anxiety earlier this week. You know, I, I define anxiety as uncertainty times powerlessness. So the two ingredients of anxiety are what you don't know and what you can't control or influence. And so if that is true, and it's, and it's times, not plus, because frankly, if you can really reduce one of them to zero, it actually affects the other one. Um, so I think the key thing to think through is, are younger people today feeling more uncertainty or more powerlessness? And I, I think that um, when it comes to some of the global issues that we're dealing with, I could make an argument that we are a more global society today than we were 50 years ago. Therefore, th things can feel out of your control more often. Okay, that would suggest that, that young, young adults today are, have, have more to struggle through anxiety-wise. And there's a lot of uncertainty. So I would say that what young people are dealing with today probably is more influenced by these two variables. Therefore, it's harder in your 20s or 30s today than it was in the past. But the idea that anxiety is monopolized by young people is just BS. Let's, let's be honest. People can have anxiety at any age. But anxiety does have a tendency to uh, decline with age. Partly because there's an element of not sweating the small stuff and learning how to roll with the punches a little bit more and know that any one particular thing that may irritate you in that day um, dilutes over time. Uh, and you, you learn the pattern recognition over time to know I shouldn't worry, worry so much about that. I have so much to talk to you about because I just I love your work so much. And. And I just want to frame up uh, my own life stage because I do think life stage, I, I'm a big fan of adult development theory and Robert Keegan's work. And mm -hmm. I think that framing your life stage is, is important, especially for the work that you do. And, and I'm here to say that I very firmly feel that the more we sort of treat anxiety as a young person's game, the worse we all do. So I'm, I'm 46. Mm. Gosh, the, you're at the low point of the U-curve of happiness. <laughs> Sorry to say. Which, for those who don't know it, the U-curve of happiness shows that generally life satisfaction declines from our early 20s till around 45 to 50. 47.2 is the low point. And then uh, with each decade after that, we get happier and happier, although your mileage may vary. <laughs> um, so, But these are all averages. So more, who knows what what applies to it. Well, let me tell you, it doesn't sound far off. Um, <laughs> 40, how old are you, Chip? I am 62. You're 62. Okay, so you're super happy. I am super happy. <laughs> well, you know, not every day, right. but I am. I would say I'm more content than happy, and there's a big difference between the two. Um, I'm 46. I have three children, the youngest of whom is eight, the oldest of whom is 14. Wow. And I would say for me, just to set a theme, I feel very stuck by, by three themes that you really take on, which is that I'm a really generative person. My husband is too. We both have a million hobbies. We write. He's very artistic. We are creators. We're very creative. And we feel very stuck between the harsh financial realities of living and that is such a tension for both of us. I want to be this generative 
person who creates and leaves leaves good things for the world, but I have three young kids and a huge mortgage and college, and that feels like a real tension. And I I know it does for a lot of my listeners. I'm also coming to a point where I'm recognizing long-held patterns of behavior and anxiety that really haven't served me and I really want to get rid of, but I it's a constant struggle. <laughs> Girlfriend, you are a perfect candidate to come to the Elder Academy, the world's first midlife wisdom school, uh, <laughs> because many of the things you're talking about here are the kinds of things we focus on our week- weekly workshops. Well, am I normal? Is this is this a normal? You're so thing? Okay. Normal. Well, you may be, you know, normal with with some, you know, a little flavoring that's unique to you, but yes, many of the things you're feeling are, are not unusual, especially between age 45 and 50. One of the, you know, we we tend to call it the midlife crisis, but it's really midlife chrysalis. That's the way I look at it. Um, the the crisis narrative suggests that everything is going wrong in midlife, usually around forty five to fifty. And instead, what's really happening is there's a bunch of things that are changing. The kinds of things that are happening for people and that could lead to anxiety uh, around, let's say, early forties to around age fifty or in the early fifties is. Disappointment equals expectations minus reality. <laughs> so we have often we have all these expectations of ourselves that we have built up in our teens, twenties, thirties, and maybe early forties. And it's around forty or mid forties that we start to see we're not going to be the president of the United States. We're not going to be a billionaire. Our kids are not going to Ivy League schools. We didn't marry our soulmate. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reality that sets in. And so, um, as my friend Brené Brown calls it. It's the midlife unraveling. You have to unravel your expectations. You have to actually be open to rejiggering, you know, what is important to you. And that's happening at the same time that uh, often we have a lot of spinning plates. If you've got three kids, three younger kids at home um, and you've, you're, you know, you're working full time and your husband's working full time. I mean, there's not a lot of space and, you know, space is what creates curiosity. Space is what creates a sense of awe in life. But when you feel like you're on the treadmill and you're just trying to keep up with some expectation that you've built for yourself, um, it's not surprising that you would have a lot of anxiety, disappointment, regret, all kinds of, you know, not so great emotions. Um, And so part of what we do at MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, um, is we help people to see that um, midlife is an opportunity to consciously curate their life in a new way to do what we call the great midlife edit, let go of mindsets, expectations, habits, even archetypes of how we see ourselves, letting those go in such a way that they can be replaced by something that feels more appropriate for the next few decades of our life. Because if you're 46, I mean, here's here's an interesting math exercise for you, uh, Maura. And how long do you think you'll live? What, what, what age do you think you'll live till? Ooh, I mean, I hope till I'm 90. Okay. So let's say it's, let's say it's 90. That's a, that's a fair number. So what percentage of your adult life do you still have ahead of you? Half. More. The, your adult life. At start, let's oh, right. Again. Right. Age, age 18. I'm going to do the math here while we're talking. So if you live till um, 90, you have 72 years of adulthood, basically 90 minus 18. Um, you have 44 years of those 72 years ahead of you. You have 61% of your adulthood still ahead of you. Now, we in, in American culture in particular are not very good at actually we, – we, well, we tend to underestimate how much life 
we still have ahead of us. Yes. And how happy that life will be. Again, the U-curve of happiness shows that our 50s are happier than our 40s, and then 60s happier than 50s, 70s happier than 60s, and women in their 80s happier than their 70s. So your best years may be ahead of you in a variety of ways. So let's dive into expectations. I I would add that another element of anxiety is around expectations. And a lot of us have to live out many years before we untangle what are our own intrinsic expectations versus the expectations that we have grown up with that have been placed on us that feel like they're just in the water. I mean, that that for me, and I think a lot of the my listeners and readers, anxious achievers, has been a huge piece both in their ambition and in their anxiety, right? Am I meeting the world's expectations of me, the my my super ego's expectations, my inner child, my parent, whoever. I'm curious about your own journey with expectations. When you were a kid, were you raised to be successful? Oh, I had a success script. Really? Uh, my father's staying here with me right now here in Baja. So I, li- I live in a variety of places, but I live a lot of the time here in Mexico, in Southern, Southern Baja. And my, my parents had a success script for me. I was a firstborn. Both my parents were firstborn. I was Stephen Townsend Conley Jr., a chip off the old block. <laughs> so I was issued a success script early in life. And it said, you know, success is, and fill in the blank, it's, you know, how people, um, you know, what the work that you do, the job that you have defines whether you're, you deserve self-esteem. <laughs> um, your, uh, how you people look at you, um, you know, is important. How you measure up competitively is important. And so it's all these things. And so Carol Dweck at Stanford's work has shown that, you know, on mindset has shown that we can have a fixed or a growth mindset. And this really relates to expectations. If you have a fixed mindset, you tend to think you have a fixed amount of capacity and your job is to just, you know, optimize that. And you focus more on proving yourself uh, and winning than improving yourself and learning. A growth mindset is about improving yourself and learning. And so if you can shift the expectation in your, of how you see your life and what you are looking for or expecting from life from the idea that it is a constant hundred yard dash and you're just, your job is to win the race. Your job is to always compare yourself with others and see that you're doing better. You're in the top 10 percentile or whatever. You know, for me, the expectation is top 2%, top 1%. For others, it might be top 50%. Um, So that expectation, which is very much dependent upon comparing yourself, gets back to a very Buddhist principle, which is comparison is the recipe for suffering. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If your expectation is instead focused on a growth mindset such that you don't compare yourself. What you're focusing on is your own desire to improve um, and to learn. And so when I see myself most anxious and frustrated, it's when I am applying a fixed mindset and and comparing myself with others, judging myself pretty harshly, um, and thinking that that kind of way of treating myself will actually uh, create a long-term success for myself. It might create a short-term success. Fear is a great motivator in the short term. Um, It allows you to (laughs) outrun the lion. Um, Stress is a great inducer of action. And in the short term, that's fine. In the long term, it burns you out. Mm. That's just, I mean, it's really obvious. And life is a long-term proposition. And so 
you know, for me, I've learned to ask myself when I'm really frustrated. I was very frustrated this week. I had some a lot, a lot of things happen and I had anxiety and I, I appreciate that we're doing this podcast today because I had anxiety attacks this week. Really? I have not had anxiety attacks in 20 years. And this week, just yesterday and the day before, I had them. I had a good sleep last night. I feel actually really good today. Strangely, I'm shocked at how quickly I got to the other side. Part of the way I got to the other side was I wrote down in a Google Doc what wasn't working for me, what I needed to change, mm. what expectations I needed to evolve. And then I needed to share that with someone who I feel has been pushing me on something. Huh. And I feel like they've been pushing me in a way that has built up an expectation that I do not want to try to live up to. And so by, you know, I'm actually literally after this recording, I go on to a call with that person who received the document last is, night. Is this a work or a personal thing? It's a, it's a, it's work, a work thing. thing. Um, and so I'll see how they respond to it. I'm sure they're not going to respond all that well to it because it's not what their expectation is. Right. So in, a, in some, what we're trying to do, sometimes we have our own expectations that are just beating the crap out of us. And sometimes it is this mutual expectation or team expectation or whatever it is, someone expecta- someone else's expectation of us that is making us anxious. And so yeah, last night I wrote this three-page document that said, listen, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I think we need to do. I want to change our expectation and take some of the pressure off because the last thing we need to do is to feel like failures uh, because we are on a trajectory of success, but our expectation is way too high at this stage. Do you feel like your anxiety or panic attack helped you crystallize this? What was what was the role of these anxiety attacks this week, do you think, that you hadn't had in 20 years? Well, the body keeps score. And I, I have cancer. Mm-hmm. I, have, um, I have cancer that spread to my lymphs um, as of you know, two months ago, we found that out. So I'm on hormone hormone blockers right now, which is like going through accelerated menopause. So I think mm-hmm. some of this is also just hormonal and physical. But I actually think that in some ways, you know, our I wrote a book called Emotional Equations. And that book really studied emotions and understood like what – that's why I have all these equations. <laughs> the anxiety equation, and the disappointment equation. Um, what it helped me to see is that uh, emotions are, are really great indicators of, of – wisdom and intuition and what you need to t- you know pay attention to your body keeps score so to speak and some of that body keeping score is the emotions that we're feeling in our body and so i think that this week it was a real wake up call for me to say i don't want to live as stressed out as i feel right now based upon a set of expectations that don't feel right they feel mi- mistaken and misguided mm. and you know, I just told my truth. Now, the truth is that I'm the CEO of this company and the person I'm talking to is uh, one of my partners um, and someone I really admire and I appreciate. And and yet I really needed to say, hey, I want us to, to really see the full picture right now. You know, so I think in some ways I have the benefit of being in a power position. Um, and that's if I was not, if I was in the opposite, if I was in uh, this, this, my partner's position, then I, it might be harder because there's less control. Back to anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. I feel a certain amount of power in how we can make a decision on this that will actually take some of the pressure off. Um, so let's be let's be honest that you know I'm in an enviable position as a result of that. Well, well, let's get your advice here because obviously, and a huge question I get from people is 
the flip side, except they're the person who doesn't have the power. I'm having anxiety attacks. I'm having panic attacks. My boss, my boss is toxic. My boss expects things that are unreachable. What do I do? Well, I will give you a generalized answer, which is unfortunate because there are so many variables here. Do you trust and respect the boss? Does the boss have your best interest at heart? Do they want you to succeed? Do you like the culture of the company and do you want to stick around? So those are some of the variables that would influence how I would, you know, modify my, my, my perspective on this uh, or advice. But I would just say the best thing to do is I think two things. One is sort of um, more lyrical and one is more logical. The lyrical thing is come up with a metaphor. Metaphors are really valuable. Metaphors you know, you know, half glass, half full, da, 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 da. and there's all kinds of metaphors in the world. Metaphors help to take sometimes complex ideas and make them really clear. So it's like, for example, my metaphor of the midlife chrysalis. Mm-hmm. When I say midlife chrysalis, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, the caterpillar right. butterfly journey is a chrysalis. change. Oh, that's where transformation happens. Oh, yes. Transformation is sort of gooey and liminal and messy middle, but yeah, that's where it's going to happen. So a metaphor can be helpful. A metaphor alone is not going to work with a logical box. It's a greeting card. So yeah. that's why, why, why the logical is really important too. But I think both are help. If you have both, it's even better. Um, the logical is just laying out the facts as you see them. And really just sort of saying, here's what I'm seeing. And, and by laying these out, I want you to understand my mindset and my perspective on this. And some of the way I'm seeing it may not be accurate. I look forward to you telling me where I'm wrong. But let me tell you how what I'm seeing and lay out 8, 10, 4, 12, 20, 20 facts and say, and then based upon these facts, this is my primary concern about what you're expecting or what we're trying to do is it, it, my primary concern is this. These are the facts. And then this is what really um, is my the resulting perspective I have that is leading me to a concern that I'm at odds with you. And, and then see what happens. Because quite frankly, if you lay out the facts, they may say, hey, you've, you've made a good case here. Or they may say, hey, six of your 10 facts I, I think are just mistaken. Um, and here's why I think they're mistaken. And then you have a really thoughtful conversation. If you lay that out, the combination of the logic and the lyric um, – and your boss completely is dismissive, then you've got a bigger problem. And, but, but, you know, I think taking, both, taking that approach could work. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to do's, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Going, going back, 
you know, to the the pre-modern elder chip. So <laughs> you were raised with the success equation. You went to, I think, Stanford and Stanford Business School. Is that correct? correct. Okay. Yeah. So, and then you started a hotel business when you were 26 years old. When did you get to a point <laughs> where, I guess, the success expectations didn't matter or did they always matter? Like, what was the yeah, transformation I mean, there? I, you know, I, going to Stanford Business School, I, I joined Stanford Business School at age 21. Can you believe that? That's crazy. Wow. So in 1982, I graduated from Stanford undergrad, went, was accepted straight into business school because I took a year off as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. And worked, so I had a little. I had a little bit of work experience, but I was still quite green. The, I was the the youngest person in my class, and my second youngest person in my class was Seth Godin, oh. guru, who is a good friend of mine. And we both wrote our we wrote our first book together long long ago when we were in business school. So I think what was helpful for me in business school is I saw a lot of people just like me, um, type A achievers, and I I didn't. I mean, I, I liked a lot of the people I saw, but I didn't love the life they were living. They were older than me generally, on average four years older than me. And I could sort of see the future. And I, I was like, I don't want to be like that. So in some ways, my definition of success really changed uh, in business school, which is odd. Yeah. You know, instead of become, sort of eating, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, and, and, and becoming more of a MBA nerd and achievement junkie, uh, my definition of achievement really shifted uh, to you know, what brings me joy? How could I be creative? How could I go out and make a difference in the world? And so starting the boutique hotel company called Joie de Vivre in San Francisco in 1987 was my way of using creativity, freedom to, to create a culture-driven company that I thought could be a role model. And it became one. We became the second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S. But more importantly, we became a company whose culture a lot of other companies admired. And it led me to start writing uh, a bunch of books um, around leadership that, um, you know, became very popular in some New York Times bestsellers. So that all, you know, yes. And I just even say New York Times bestsellers shows that I, I still have a, a desire to impress you. Well, you're um, human. <laughs> well, and it, it, but it also says that something was working. Something right. was Something was clicking. Um and then I had this dark night of the soul between 45 and 50. Uh, I had, you know, the euchre of happiness was not, no one knew it yet. So <laughs> no, I didn't know, I didn't know I was going through the, the bottom of the euchre of happiness. And I, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And I, my sense of everything, I didn't, I, it just, I didn't want to do the thing I was doing anymore. And I felt really trapped. Mm. So, trapped by money, uh, trapped by expectations, trapped tr frankly trapped by the company I'd created and my the role of my so much of the company revolved around me. Um and um we had a very strange capital structure in terms of all the different investors we had in hotels we owned. We had 52 hotels that we managed and it was just a lot. It was a lot and it, we were going through the great recession. I just did I wanted I wanted some more creativity and freedom in my life and I built a company with to grow to 3,500 employees and I just didn't want to be running that company anymore. So, but I felt trapped because I didn't have uh, someone to hand the reins over to. We were running out of cash, et cetera. So, you know, I, I, I sold the business at the bottom of the great recession. And, you know, two years later, you know, the Airbnb founders came, came knocking when they had this small tech startup that wanted to be a global uh, hospitality brand that democratized hospitality. And, 
And that's how I became the modern elder. They said, you are our modern elder, Chip. And I was like, wait, I don't want to be a modern elder. Um, <laughs> how how old were you? I started a company at 26, yeah. you know, but, but the average age at Airbnb, you know, in two, early 2013, when I joined was uh, 26 and, and I was 52. And um, so they said, they said to me, but Chip, a modern elder is different than a traditional elder. A modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. And that's what really stuck with me. It's like, okay. I will, if that's what a modern elder is, I will be your modern elder. And for four years, I was the full-time in-house mentor to the founders and the head of global hospitality and strategy. And I wore a bunch of hats and I loved it. Um, I really saw the value of intergenerational collaboration. Um, and yeah, and then I went for three years, three and a half years after that as a very active strategic advisor to them to take the company up to its very successful IPO. And um, it was during that time when I was the advisor that I started thinking about a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, that was the story of my time at Airbnb. And that gave me a, a Baja aha. I was down here in Baja <laughs> writing the book. And I had an epiphany, which is why, why is it that we don't have midlife wisdom schools where people can cultivate and harvest their wisdom and sort of reimagine themselves re, and repurpose themselves in new ways into their 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, and 80s. And who knows? We've had people from as young as 28 and as old as 88. The average age has been about 54. 54. What was your relationship with anxiety when you were a CEO? Mm. Well, at first, I felt like I had to hide it, of course. I mean, like, you know, like an anxious CEO is, 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 is dangerous because, you know, the CEO is a chief emotions officer, and our emotions are contagious. Mm. So if you're anxious... You're going to make other people anxious. And so the higher you are in the org chart, the more influence you have with your emotions. But then hiding your anxiety wasn't necessarily good. Hiding my anxiety wasn't necessarily good because it just like came out in other ways. Do you think that most anxious CEOs just hide it? I get this question all the time and I'm, and they're like, well, where are all the anxious CEOs if so many CEOs are anxious? And it's my hunch that they're in YPO talking exactly. to <laughs> Uh, at, at, they're talking to each other in YPO about how anxious they are. So, so let's be honest that peer-to-peer -peer networks have just exploded in the last couple of decades, yeah. partly because peer-to-peer -peer networks, and I am a member of YPO, peer-to-peer um, -peer networks give senior level leaders and including CEOs the ability to talk about their anxiety and to talk and to be vulnerable Um I had a flatline experience at age 47 in the midst of all my dark night of the soul. I, I gave a speech in St. Louis and while I was signing books uh, on stage, I collapsed at, while I was sitting in a chair and was unconscious and the paramedic showed up a few minutes later. And then I had a, my first of, of nine different um, flatline experiences and they had to shock me back to life. I was having an allergic reaction to a, an antibiotic I was on because I had a broken ankle. But bottom line was that was a wake-up call for me. And it was a wake-up call for me to be vulnerable. And over the next few months, I another equation came up for me. Despair equals suffering minus meaning. So, you know, despair and, and meaning are sort of inversely proportional. The more you can find meaning, even the worst of circumstances, the more likely you have less despair. This is, you know, I learned this from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, about being in a concentration camp. So um, three months after my flatline experience, I introduced that equation to our top 80 leaders in the company at our annual management retreat. I said, despair equals suffering minus meaning. And I told my story. Not every, <clears throat> Most people didn't know I'd had a flatline experience. We'd kept it quiet. 
And I said, I, my goal in this management retreat is to learn how to become a vulnerable visionary. Because by being vulnerable, I'm giving you the opportunity to be vulnerable as well. And by being vulnerable together, then maybe we can find some meaning and, you know, work as a team of people who have a vision. And I'm going to be a visionary still. I want to be the vision, visionary of this company. I want all of us to feel, have a vision of this company. But I also want us to feel like we don't have to hide our emotions. And that was the best management retreat we ever had. It was a three-day retreat. And that's what it, how we started the retreat. And the level of uh, generativity in terms of ideas and creativity and and people being honest about what's not working in the company was was phenomenal. And so, um, yeah, and it was going, it was in, gosh, what that was, it was November 2008, and we were going into the depths of that Great Recession at that time. So helping people to see that, okay, it's, you know, we can be vulnerable, we can be anxious, but we're a team. And we're here to, to actually be open with each other, but also focused on the prize, focused on how we're going to solve things, not just wallow in our worries. When you were when you were feeling anxious as a CEO, were you in were you in therapy? Were you getting treatment for it, or were you were you literally hiding it from everyone and yourself? I had a I had a coach who was my best friend, and she was a very established coach, and she was holding my hand through that time. Yeah. Um, so I was I was with a coach, but not with a therapist. Ah, was it with a therapist? I was with a therapist probably within a year or two of that time. I I had a coach, then I went. I had a therapist. And the, th- with the coach worked better than the therapist, actually. Um, was not on any, any medication. Um, so, but yeah, it was hard. It was hard. I think in retrospect, I probably should have been on a little bit of medication just because I, it was a dark time. Um, but I, and I, you know, I lost five friends to suicide during that time, between 2008 to 2010, all men in midlife. And I got to believe that some of that had to do with um, uh, the inability to express the emotions or to be open about them, the emotions. Um, and part of the reason I started the Modern Elder Academy, MEA, was because I deeply believe that this is a transformational time for people uh, between, say, you know, 45 and 65 in particular, but 40 to 60 for some people. It's a really important time for transformation, but it's one that um, we have such, we have no roadmap. We have no roadmap. And there's a, a bit of a sense that, God, if, if I'm getting the game of life wrong at age 46, maybe there's something wrong with me. And often what people are going through at that age is, are, is relatively normal. Well, and it's funny, you know, for women, I think an extra layer is that you yeah. become in, invisible. You, you the inv- especially... Yeah. For, men, for women, it's invisibility. For men, it's irrelevance. These really? Two words. Yeah. Men in midlife are irrelevant. I have a hard time believing that when I look at leadership around this country. Well, you're right. Although if you look at some middle, you know, senior leadership for yeah. sure. But for a lot of, for a lot of men, you know, women have, have had to deal with sexism their whole lives and, you know, and maybe other kinds of isms. Men, especially straight white men have not had to deal with any kind of, you know, uh, demogra- demographic bias. And you hit 50 and it's the first time you see that you flattened out in your career path and you're perceived as maybe overpaid and <laughs> you don't feel like people are listening to you anymore. And maybe people are starting to judge you based upon your age. And I, I think, you know, I, I'm no, you know, I'm not here to suggest that men should be pitied, uh, white, straight men should be pitied, <laughs> pitied for this. 
What I am saying is that irrelevance is the word that we hear from uh, men in midlife about what bothers them. Whereas for women, it is invisibility. That is, that is, in, there's lots of ways people, women uh, say it, but invisibility is sort of the, the overall umbrella. Yeah. Well, you, it, but I think what we're all talking about is a loss of power, is a loss of our perceived power and status in this world. Power and respect. Yeah, I think they're, they're, it's both um, because you know someone someone may not have felt much power previously, but you know, generally speaking, you're in your early, you know, it, it varies. You know, we've we've lived in a, a very hierarchical culture, you know, historically. It's only the last forty or fifty years that we've really sort of said, "Hey, <laughs> you can be a billionaire in your twenties." <laughs> um, but generally speaking, there's a there's a loss of respect often that has is sort of a new phenomenon for older people. A uh, hundred years ago, 150 years ago, uh, you know, re- respect your elders. Um, it's like, okay, no, actually today it's about when it comes to your elders, just put them in a retirement community. <laughs> Let's do some age apartheid <laughs> and just like put them over there. And, and so like, you know, it's not like respect your elders, like <laughs> make your elders invisible. And exactly. And you can be an elder. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I had a challenge with the word modern elder, but you know, it, Tom Brady in the NFL was an elder at 45 for sure. He's an elder at 35 as an NFL quarterback. And you can be an elder as a software engineer at 35. You can be an elder at 30 as a fashion model or at 40 as an advertising executive. You know, the, the majority of Americans by the year 2025 will have a younger boss. We've never seen this before. Um, power is, while, while it is true, in Washington, D.C., power is moved older and older and older. <clears throat> but in the boardroom, the, in the last 20 years, power has moved younger. And because of the digitization and um, the importance of DQ, digital intelligence, um, that is going to continue to be uh, true as more and more, more and more people are stepping into roles of power as entrepreneurs or in, in corporations at younger ages. That's super interesting. And It brings me to a question I wanted to ask you around the role of mental health in gaining wisdom. Yeah. Well, I define wisdom as metabolized experience. (laughs) So think of it as life lessons. Metabolized experience, which leads to distilled compassion. So metabolized experience you get. So it's like, okay, life lessons. I... But you gotta you gotta metabolize them. You can have life lessons, but if you you haven't figured them out, so one of the things I've done since age twenty eight, when I was a clueless CEO two years into running my company, is I went home one weekend. Uh, I was at home and I was lamenting the business, and I took a diary off the wall uh, and off off the bookshelf and uh, started writing in it, and I wrote on the cover of my wisdom book, and for every weekend since then for thirty four years. Um, I have at, on the weekend spent 20 to 30 minutes making notes of what I, what I learned that week. What were my key lessons of the week? Um, and I would never have said back then I was metabolizing my experience, but that's exactly what was going on. I was accelerating my wisdom by making sense of what I'd learned. And so that's the first part of what wisdom is. Um, and, and, and so, pattern recognition too, right? It's pattern recognition you have to sure. understand your patterns. Yeah. No doubt about it. Um, because the more you can understand your patterns, the more you take the unconscious and make it conscious and you operate differently from that point forward. You have a different pair of glasses. 
Distilled compassion, what does that mean? So compassion is to, you know, to be uh, caring and understanding uh, and, you know, loving of, you know, people. But to distill it means like when someone feels the compassion that's distilled, it means that it doesn't feel like someone's just universally loving you up for everything. But instead, they're really surgical, thoughtful, and loving in exactly offering you what you need at that moment. And, and so it's, it feels very customized and customized compassion is, you know, been proven to be more valuable than just sort of universal compassion because universal compassion sometimes feels a little bit like it's, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's, it's for everybody. And, and when it's distilled for you, it feels like, oh my God, that person heard me and they responded in just the right way. So wisdom is not taught, it's shared. So I'm a big fan, you know, we run a wisdom school. So wisdom is a very important topic. So back to your question, which was about wisdom and- Mental health. Yeah, mental health. If you can actually see your patterns. So for me, I, I instead of having an anxiety attack this week that would have lasted maybe months in the past, I nipped, the, nipped it in the bud in two days. Mm-hmm. And it was partly because I know that for me, anxiety for me is free floating. And if I don't actually lasso it down to what it is, like what is exactly giving me the anxiety, then um, it just, it's sort of just out there. And it's, I, ha- I haven't really gotten, I haven't corralled it properly. Uh, another exercise I do every week um, is I have a grid, like a spreadsheet, and I have a, uh, on the left axis, um, all of the things that make me anxious or keep me up at night. And on the the horizontal axis at the top, I just have each week. And so what I do is I, I rate rank from one to five, the things that keep me awake at night. And I look at those over time because I, I want to try to understand the patterns in them. I want to understand like, oh man, this thing has been bothering me. It's been number one, two, or three out of the five for almost every week for the last six months. What the heck am I doing to solve that? And so, you know, that's another way to take wisdom, pattern recognition, and apply it to things that are messing with your mental health. I love that, you know, because because a lot of us in the field say anxiety is data. Mm. So what you're doing is you're actually compiling the various pieces of data. Mm-hmm. That's really good. My last question for you is about your role in the hospitality industry for for your career. Mm-hmm. Hospitality, it strikes me, is probably a difficult business to be in if you're anxious because <laughs> you have to make so many people happy. Like your whole job is to make your guests happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so what did being in that business for so long teach you about managing anxiety or how anxiety shows up for you? Like what, yeah. how, how does that? Yeah. Well, I, I uh, at some point made the shift from feeling like I need to make my guests happy um, to recognizing I need to create the conditions for my guests to potentially become happy ah. because I can't make them happy. Right. But I can I can create the conditions. That's what I can control. And also, I, I learned a long time ago, and I wrote about this in my book, Peak. Um, my job is to make my employees happy first and foremost. If you're in a, in a service or a hospitality industry, if your employees are not happy, 
your customers in the long run will not be happy either. In the short run, there can be, you know, you can abuse your employees and, you know, it doesn't immediately mean your customers are going to feel it. But the culture shifts if your employees are not feeling good and, and that culture shift affects the service slash hospitality culture. Uh, service is a science and hospitality is an art. And so long story short is, yeah, I have come to realize that um, I got to focus on my employees first. And secondly, we can only create the conditions for people to to be happy. We can't make them happy. And is there freedom in that? There's freedom in knowing that I have some control over the conditions, but I have no control over what that guest is bringing to the front desk of the hotel Hmm. uh, the day they arrive or, you know, at the modern elder Academy, you know, the sheer volume of what someone's bringing with them. Uh, (laughs) we have to create the conditions for us to help them feel a sense of transformation in the course of a week. Um, you know, there's something called the net promoter score. It's NPS and we have in like 92, 93 NPS, which is in the 99th percentile. So we're doing it right. We, we, we measure, but we also know that we, um, as was true a few weeks ago, we had somebody who just was so anxious. She was having anxiety attacks and she, you know, she probably, even though we have applications for like asking questions for these kinds of things, we just, she was not in a place where she could actually experience the program. And ultimately she, you know, she chose and we encouraged her to, to leave about three days into the week long program because, um, she needed to go in and take care of herself. And so we stayed in touch with her and she's going to come back. She ended up going into a residential uh, treatment program for anxiety for uh, 30 days. And, you know, I bet we'll see her in the fall. Um, so long story short is, you know, we are going to have situations like that. So we've got to be prepared for it. But, you know, creating the conditions is the key. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.